I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? Yes, you can tell we've got that casual, jazzy intro, so it's a bit low energy, high energy, but look, we're here. This is a quality that you're going to get. I am your host, Alex Lathbridge. As always, I have Sahail Patel. What's up, my gangsters? And, you know, it's been really difficult since Oz um, left, and now Hannah's gone off and is living her best life on a tropical island. And it's, it's kind of hard when you lose two people. It's true, plus our ratio's all fucked. I know, right? <laughs> this is a... Inc- like, this is like 90% of science at this point. Like, you can now... I mean, the only thing we have going for us is the increased chance that the Home Office will try and deport us. That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to circle back around, what we've done is um, find someone who's pretty good at being two people at once, like the value of two people at once. That's that's very true. Yeah. Um, so, person that I've gassed up beyond all belief, could you please introduce yourself? Hello, I am Susie Gage. So, my day job, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool. The links between drug use and mental health is what I'm interested in. Hi, Susie. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the room. I'm so excited to be here. Why? Because I love, because I love you guys. I love this podcast. That is a complete long time listener, first timer (laughs) guest. Are you actually? Do you actually listen to the podcast? I'm extremely flattered if you do. But Susie, the reason that we have you here, apart to from listening to like chat from Sahel, who's dressed as like. You know, you know, he's he's an all black tracksuit with like black cap and everything. Here. Rainy director. <laughs> no, 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 it's work experience for an extra in a drill music video. Yeah, that's what I'm going for. That's what you look like. That is my look. Yeah. My new look. Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> now on to lighter topics. Susie, the reason we have you here is because you, you've written a book. I wrote you, a book. And you, you released the book as yeah. well. Yeah. It's called, um, Say Why to Drugs. It is. Why, um, motherfuckers? Why? 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 Why, why, why? So, uh, in your own words, like, what is this? Okay, like, I'm not even going to do that. This is a really good book. Like, I'm listening. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm going to pretend you're not in the room for a second. Like, mm. so, hell, this is a really, really good book. I know, you've book. been telling me to read it for ages, and I really do need to get around to reading it. I know. Like, what I really enjoy about this book is that it's essentially frank, it's honest, it's, it's, like, it's just a really interesting rundown of drugs, the history of them. And what I like about the most about them is it goes through them A to Z, which oh, wow. is, yeah. That's pretty cool. I know, right? No, I, I it, to me, it's, it, it sounds silly, but like, I'm not good at reading books, like mm. straight up. 
So being able to pick it up and go like, oh, let me go straight to caffeine, cannabis, like the ones that interest me are is great. And also I really like reading this book on the train because people look at me like, what the fuck is he reading? <laughs> let uh, me take that after this episode. I'll read it. Yeah, yeah. but um, you've heard me wax lyrical about it. Susie, in your own words, What's this book? Yeah, so as you've said, it's not like a narrative kind of um, story arc type of science book. It's very much a sort of, you can dip in and out and pick the drugs that you're interested in. But the idea behind it was it was something without any hyperbole, without any spin, without any judgment, to the best that I can, because obviously I'm still a person with putting my own self into this book too, but trying wherever possible to remove any of the nonsense that quite often goes around conversations around drugs and just present what we know but also what we don't know one of the things that a lot of people have said to me when they've read it is you say we don't know a lot i'm like well yeah that's because it's really hard to do research into drugs for lots of reasons why did you feel there was a need to write a book in this way i'm an epidemiologist which means i am interested in pop patterns in population level data. So I tend to use large scale data sets, what are called longitudinal or cohort studies. So these are where large groups of people are sort of identified and followed up over time. And what they do is kind of monitored. So you can look for associations between like p drug use and mental health, for example. But the problem with that is that the people who use drugs are different from the people who don't in lots of ways other than their drug use, just because like what leads you to make that choice, what you'd really want to do in medical public health research is a randomized controlled trial. But obviously you can't take a group of teenagers and say, right, you guys smoke weed, <laughs> you guys drink alcohol, you guys tobacco, you guys- I'm happy to Puritans. volunteer for this project. But the thing is, like, even, if you, even if ethically you could do it, the, the getting people to adhere to the condition that you put them in for like these, the things that we're interested in about drugs and mental health, these are long-term effects. So you, someone needs to be, or to, in order to see the effects, you'd want probably someone to have been using a substance for years. And so even if ethically you could do it, the expense would be massive <laughs> as well. And people just wouldn't, wouldn't adhere to the condition that you put them in. Mm. For real? It's a pragmatic- Well, imagine yeah. you were told, right, you can't, you can't do anything. Oh you can't shit, have, can't. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant, yeah. <laughs> People would be like, you know what? I'm really tired of smoking a joint a day. Yeah. You know, having to vape this bowl every day is just so difficult. But it, would, be, it would get tiring. Would it? <laughs> well, I don't know. If you know. <laughs> every day, you'd be asleep most of the time. Well, uh, funny you should say yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> 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 when I started my PhD, um, Oh my God, you did a PhD? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm still working on my LMNOP, so, but getting there. It was around 10 years ago, and I, it was looking at the links between adolescent cannabis and tobacco use and mental health, um, depression and psychosis, mm. or psychotic-like experiences in particular. Um, it became apparent really quickly when I was doing it that there was just loads and loads of nonsense talked about cannabis in particular mm. in the media, and people's beliefs about the substance, including sort of some of the things that I believed as well, yeah. just wrong, just really like an easily kind of disproven as wrong. Mm, that's really interesting. I read a book a few years ago called uh, Cannabis Britannica by James Mills. Have you heard of that? I've heard of it, I haven't read it. Yeah, and it kind of touched upon that and the cultural history around uh, the prohibition of cannabis. But what did you find specifically was that was kind of misinformation? Well, misinformation about the type of effects that 
drugs have, both long-term and short-term, getting things wrong about what happens when you use multiple different drugs at the same time, mm. or even understanding sort of what's the difference between a stimulant and a depressant, or like what is, is cannabis a stimulant? Is it a psychedelic? What is it? It's hella dope. All of, <laughs> all of this kind of thing. Um, but even around like tobacco and alcohol and caffeine, these myths and misconceptions exist as well. Wow. So I mean, you talked about it, but there are so many different types of drugs. I mean, you you lay it out there in the book quite well, but for the people that haven't written, you know, that are listening to this and be like, I'm going to read the book, um, who haven't yet. Mm. Um, you know, you talk uppers, downers, stimulants, all of these things. I mean, what are all the different types of drugs? Well, some, I mean, there are more drugs than there are types of drugs, if that makes sense. So some don't really fit into a category. Like someone like Will Self will tell you that cannabis is a psychedelic. And while while cannabis does have psychedelic-like effects, it doesn't fit, it's not like, like molecularly or in lots of other ways, it's nothing like LSD or DMT or psilocybin, which are all molecularly, they all extremely similar. They all look quite a lot like serotonin, but um, cannabis is something completely different. Serotonin is the thing that makes you happy in your brain. It's a mm. neurotransmitter. Yeah, sorry, that would have been important information. It's, it's in the book. I just didn't say it. Oh my, wow, you <laughs> buy the book. So what is, what is this? Is this just like, oh, hi, it's Susie Gage and why aren't you a doctor yet? Buy my book. <laughs> buy it. Yeah, buy it. Now. So what I need to say. Um, so psychedelics are a type of Drug and and those three in particular are all very similar. Um, stimulants. So cocaine is a stimulant. Caffeine is a stimulant. Nicotine is a stimulant. Um, MDMA is sort of a stimulant. Um, amphetamine is a stimulant. MDMA is sort of a stimulant, but also has sort of psychedelic properties. It's sometimes called an empathogen, which is a really nice word, isn't it? And quite emotive of. Uh, of intoxication on MDMA as well. This idea that it makes you connected to the people or you're sort of open to experience. It's the best kind of drug, thing. let's be real. No, no, <laughs> but there's a really interesting point in your book um, where you talked about historically there was a sort of a, a hard, like a rule that people said that you shouldn't get married. Oh, yeah. Was it? You should, was it? It was Tim Timothy Leary, who was um, a scientist who uh, was really, really into LSD. Um, there's a really great book um, called I Have America Surrounded by John Higgs about Timothy Leary that I really recommend you read. But he he called it, it called MDMA instant marriage syndrome, I think. And there were bumper stickers being sold in California that, that were sort of warning people not to get married after, within two weeks of taking MDMA. Yeah, MDMA is, I, I have a love-hate relationship with MDMA because it's it can be really good, like you say, the social lubricant, but also... It's can be. Oh, I I don't know. Like I I've I don't take any of that stuff anymore. But I, I think it, it it can it can give you false experiences. Like you know, you feel connected to people, but how real is that experience? Um, how real are your emotions when you're on drugs? Is it artificial? Is it? Can you say that's a real real genuine experience? And those are some of the conflicts you have taking like those kind of stuff. Alex looks really confused. That's right a really interesting question. Yeah, no, I think Susie came in here to talk about her general, her work, her books. Yeah. You're throwing in some deep existential shit. Yeah, no, I am, like, I am, I am serious. Because that is the thing, is like when you take drugs, it affects your emotional state. How much of it is, is actually real? Like, you know? But I bet you've got friends that you only ever see when you're drunk or and they're drunk. So what's your oh, friendship? Oh, sorry, I thought, oh, I thought you <laughs> Not meant... Not you personally, was... but I mean, look, lots of it. No, sorry, yeah. for a second, I thought what you meant was like, you only got friends you see when you're drunk. Are they real? <laughs> <laughs> Are they real? No.
So, Susie, why do people do drugs? I mean, there are loads of different reasons, but one way I've sort of tried to think about it is splitting them into maybe three main types. So to feel good, like people take drugs because there's an enjoyable experience from taking a a drug. Particularly if you're quite new to it, it can be quite exciting. It can be quite a sort of social cohesion type thing, make you feel part of an in-group. It can be linked to music. It can be linked to sex. It can be linked to all sorts of things. Also, people take drugs to feel better. So this idea of kind of not uh, self-medicating isn't quite the word I mean, but lots of people use alcohol. Like if you're going out to a party that you don't particularly want to go to, that's like friends of your partner who you don't know that well and you're a bit nervous about going and you're sort of, if you have a drink or two, it'll be much more enjoyable and it's kind of managing social anxiety type thing or but some people use substances to deal with like chronic pain or all sorts of things um mental health problems not necessarily that these substances work in the way that they want them to but they can alleviate if if you're going to the doctor and they're saying well we don't know how to treat your chronic pain then you'll try all sorts of things to try and make your life more manageable or at least to kind of get you out of your headspace for a few hours. I think I've, I've used drugs for chronic pain and it can be, you're right, it can be very helpful uh, dealing, even if it's just a temporary respite from whatever, whatever it is that's causing you pain. Um, but I think it kind of links back to what you're saying about research, isn't it? How effective is it really yeah. uh, long-term dealing with chronic pain? Well, the problem is is that we're really bad at treating chronic pain. And the main treatment for chronic pain at the moment is prescription opioids, which there's Mm. quite a lot of evidence that they work really, really well for acute pain Mm. and they don't really work for chronic pain. Mm. But because we don't have anything better and chronic pain is so debilitating, doctors don't really want to say, oh, well, we'll take you off these medication Mm. for lots of reasons. Um, And so people get kind of left on this treatment that isn't really working and their doses are going up and up and up and that's how yeah well particularly in somewhere like the US where the health system is very different as well so there's also issues around what level of health insurance you have say you have an injury at work and what you really need is physio but Mm. your health insurance won't pay for that it'll just pay for the pills Mm. so you get you get on the pills and your injury doesn't really get better it's like not treating the underlying problem can lead to being much more likely to remain on, on medication yeah. like an opiate, which is also then can be used recreationally. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily call that recreational use, but used off prescription or used in a it way. It becomes a problem then. Yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah. You've written a book about drugs. Okay, so I guess what makes you qualified? Because, you know, like I don't go to my barber um, and I don't pick the barber that has a terrible haircut. I wouldn't trust them to cut my hair. You've written a book about drugs. So what drugs have you taken? (laughs) Well, for a start, I'd say you don't need to have taken drugs to write about drugs because I've done a lot of research in drugs. Boring. And usually I won't (laughs) tell anyone um, because I don't, I think it's kind of distracting. And also because I've had to deal with quite a lot of trolls in the past and whatever you say, they'll use as a stick to beat you with. But because it's you guys and I love this podcast so much, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Um... Uh, <laughs> what you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
This is wild. I mean, was that just in your youth or? Mostly. Gee, I mean, mean, it pays to be like a really good. That's evidence-based science right there. I mean, what about you, Sahel? Me? uh, This, I've I've taken a lot of shit. I'm not going to lie. Basically everything. Except from like crack, I guess, and uh, heroin. No, not heroin. Definitely not. Okay. I don't like needles. And then, but, but, that's the only thing stopping you. <laughs> Listen, I was maybe you say, shouldn't read the book. There's, there's ways to take heroin that don't involve needles. Okay, maybe I should read the book. But uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I used to volunteer for a charity called I can't remember what it's called. They do drug testing at um, festivals. The Loop. The Loop. I volunteered for the Loop. And I went to a festival in Manchester and, and the, my job was to go around asking people what drugs they've taken. And I shit you not, it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> How so? It's so funny. I had like a survey. So I had to like ask them what they'd taken that day, but also uh, what they'd done in the last six months. Have you ever tried to get someone on mushrooms <laughs> to fill out a form? It's not the best. <laughs> Let's just say it's... Uh, <laughs> It's definitely challenging. <laughs> um, but uh, by the end, I was like an expert. I was like, yeah, you've taken mushrooms. Yeah, LSD. I could tell. Yep. A couple of uh, lines of MD. You know what I mean? And it was actually fucking really fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. I got- these are some of the things that researchers have to think about as well. So yeah. David Nutt is a, he's a professor and a psychiatrist. And he um, used to be the government's drug czar, but he got sacked after, well, for a few reasons, but one of them was that he wrote an article saying that um, MDMA was less dangerous than horse riding. I remember that. Um, but yeah, there's, mm. so he, uh, yeah, he was doing this, like looking into how to do a study of psychedelics, but brain scans. So that would involve getting someone who was tripping into an MRI scanner. That is, sounds like hell on so, earth. So what he did was he created a cardboard MRI. Because obviously if you need to get someone out of an MRI scanner in a hurry, the main, well, if it's if it's really dangerous to life, there's an expunge button which blasts the top off the MRI scanner, no. kills the magnet and costs you many, many thousands of pounds. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah, also yeah. blows a hole in the building that it's in and all of this kind of thing. Wow. Uh, it's very rarely done. Usually it's when metal gets taken into the room, but you don't want someone in an MRI scanner who's going to freak out, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they, rather than risk the expense, he created this cardboard MRI scanner in the top of this building in Bristol. And um, some of my friends were uh, participants in that study. So they had to take psilocybin, um, which is the active compound in magic mushrooms and go in this cardboard scanner. And Mm. it turns out actually that most people were completely fine. So they were able to then run the study. And from doing that, they found out loads about, which is all in the book, about um, what brains that are tripping look like compared to brains that aren't tripping. Mm. Um, Mm. And what what is that? Yeah, I'm super interested. Before that, um, so your friends just took psilocybin. What the fuck was Bristol like in the mid 2000s? (laughs) What's Bristol's like now, mate? Have you been to Bristol? It's like fucking drug capital. I miss Bristol. I don't. Bristol's a banging place. Banging city. But, so Mm. how the brains look different? Yeah. Yeah. So really interestingly, um, the sort of... they did this kind of connectivity study and what they found was that the number of connections was the same, but in a non-intoxicated brain, it's very streamlined. Like what we're kind of taught when when we're learning sort of A-level biology is what, what um, fires together, wires together. You know, our brains are designed to pass messages very efficiently. And so there's lots of hubs that talk to each other and don't talk to other hubs because there's different bits of the brain that 
have different connections. But in the brains that were intoxicated on psilocybin, same number of connections, but much more global connectivity far fewer kind of hubs and much more just general all the bits of the brain talk I don't want to say talking to each other because that makes yeah no. you know what I mean yeah. like all of the bits of the mm. brains connected to each other much more sort of you're getting a bit more cross wiring egalitarian yeah that's not a word egalitarianly yeah. look look yeah. look yeah. This, this isn't where facts live <laughs> yeah. this is this we're is. just describing things loosely yeah. um, okay alright we shoot from the hip and then edit later yeah <laughs> listen, listen I think I think that's really interesting because the times I've done truffles or mushrooms or anything it's actually you. there is that sensory overlap where things start like merging into another I don't know how to describe well, it so yeah. synesthesia is kind of a way yeah. to describe it where two senses that aren't normally connected are and some people have this as a condition so they might taste colour or um, see colours when they hear music or smell words you know people have all sorts of different mm. crossing of the senses and people when they're on a psychedelic also reports synesthesia-like things, so that could potentially be one explanation for why. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember getting have, taking mushrooms and playing the guitar, and every time I played a note on the guitar, like the my visual perception would be affected. So it'd be like strings like bending and morphing. Alex is laughing uncontrollably. What's up? It's because you know, with drugs, when you do have a psychedelic, it's your own personal. It's you know, very subjective. You see what you can mm, see. So mm-hmm. in my head, you're saying you're playing the guitar. In what I think really happened was you were in the corner of your like room <laughs> in, in in Salford. Just, just like no, just with the, <laughs> no, no, just with the guitar hero thing. Just pressing <laughs> it. Just the guitar hero. I'm the greatest rocker that ever lived. And you, like, <laughs> you didn't even have a PS2. You were just 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 like just whamming the thing up and just down. crying. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like oh man, you know I'm really good. I can do the solo on Linkin Park's Bleed It Out. Yeah. <laughs> that is exactly were you there Alex is that what happened I didn't even see you mate um, but, but saying that actually doing mushrooms like it wasn't I would say it wasn't necessarily a good experience it was a very interesting experience and it was it was it was fun like in a way but uh, it was also like well trippy you know yeah. um, well so one of the things I tried to do in the book is mm. talk to people about their experiences of using drugs as well as presenting like the kind of the science lots because lots of the drugs in this book lots of people who read this book won't have ever had experience of Mm. them so trying to get across what intoxication on different drugs is like because drugs are very different from each other it's not we're kind of taught or i was certainly that kind of all drugs are bad which kind of implies that all drugs are the same but actually they're not at all. And there's a vast different amount of types of intoxication experience that you can have. But particularly around psychedelics, where it's something that's seen as so sort of, it changes your perception so much. Trying to get that across to people who've never who've never done it about what, what it might be like and why why people like the experience or get or find it interesting or get something out of it. So there's a lot of um, discussion with uh, people about their experiences in there as That's well. That's really interesting. I definitely have to read that. I mean, yeah. you, because that that is the one thing um, that I found with this. It you've quite beautifully been able to put into words what what are very personal feelings. That's mm. really good. That's really good to hear because it's always a risk when you're doing something that could just be like a reference book where you might want to read a couple of chapters but then you wouldn't want to read any more because you're like well that's all I'm interested in but what I hope is that if people are only interested in a couple of substances they'll read those and then go 
well, there, there were things in there that I wasn't expecting, and so I'll try some more. And no, the more of the pages, not the drugs. Wait, more <laughs> of the pages of learning. About either the drugs. or, Thank either you or. For personally. The <laughs> and one thing I found was really interesting. Quite a lot of these drugs, um, you're talking about how they were like commonly used, like indigenously. So things like Kratom, Southeast Asia. Um, the one that I saw particularly was um, like DMT, so um, ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you could tell us like a, a little bit more about just your views on like, I guess, drugs as an indigenous thing and then drugs as drugs are bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Can it be a spiritual experience or is it just like dumb kids getting high? Like. Is it, Dumb is ableist. Let's bounce off that one. It can can it be a spiritual experience or can it, is it just silly kids getting high? Well, it's more like, mm. you know, you've got something that can be spiritually like quite mm. um, important. Like that is an important part of your mm. um, culture. You know, um, you know, what was it? There was a line about it being used like a divination type. I remember it said Harry Potter and I was like, yeah. That was salvia. salvia because the name, the plant name is salvia divinorum. Yeah. 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 So you've got drugs that are, you know, they have cultural, they have like cultural relevance. They have historical context. Almost all of them, in fact. Exactly. Yeah. And But then you have the drugs are bad like type thing where we're at now. And so I just, I found that quite interesting how these drugs have gone from being used as part of everyday lives um, and for like special purposes. Ritualistically. There we go. Yeah. And yeah. to now it being sort of a bit more for pleasure. It would have been like a rite of passage. You might say you take this thing, you trip out, you have that existential experience. Where you, what, is that the right word? Or you have that experience where you go, actually intrinsic experience where you go inside yourself and it's meant to be like, that's the, that's the stereotype, isn't it? Of mm, taking well, these drugs. We've got Susie but here. It, but yeah. well, I mean, f- the first thing to say is that I'm not a cultural or medical historian. And so I read a lot of stuff about the history of lots of substances, but I was really quite nervous writing those bits of the book because I've seen a lot of of historians go, bloody scientists, they, they write their books and then they go, the history of it is this, blah, 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 done kind of thing and ignore like what history is and so I was really worried about doing that in the book so hopefully I haven't but I think what you're what you're saying about um the kind of rite of passage use I think that that was done but I think for things like if I if I'm right about ayahuasca is that actually it wasn't everyone who did it it was the shaman or the shaman who did it and you would go and take your problem and then they would have a trip and and interpret it for you it wouldn't be you yourself that was that doing it. That sounds like some kind of scam. I'm not going <laughs> to... But, but, but I... Well, like, I don't yo, know. Wait, wait. I've got the problem, but you get to do the drug. I'm going to get high. <laughs> I'll figure your shit out. Come back to me tomorrow. He's there stripping. He's a... Yo. Not, that, okay, I mean, culturally, I'm being very sensitive right now. You've got to understand this podcast is very inter- uh, intersectional. We understand this and you know, us better than most. We do understand that culture has a massive context in all of science, but... It does feel like a bit of bullshit. <laughs> Yo, let me just trip balls. But I think then there's sort of the sort of cynical thing that's happened with ayahuasca is this kind of selling enlightenment via an intoxication experience to to uh, Westerners who go over or like go over to the Amazon, but also just go over to Netherlands. And so you can find websites. Well, in, will... in the Netherlands, you can do DM. Okay, yeah, there's DMT experiences. Um, in fact, I um, yeah, I was looking at I was looking at the website of it. Is what I was going to say. I was like, <laughs> in fact, I, I was you know just the side income. I was looking at setting up my own tour. 
But they 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 sort of pitch it as um, yeah we've brought this shaman over and we're mm. um, we so it's an authentic experience and it's like but is it really an authentic experience in the middle of um, Amsterdam mm. um, and is it the kind of thing that you do once and then that's like you've sort of like a I, I spoke to some to a friend of mine who's a Buddhist and he is quite annoyed about this sort of shortcut to spirituality or enlightenment. Man, fuck that. that. <laughs> I, how hard I had to fucking work for this. <laughs> I mean, they call, they call specific on the topic of DMT, a lot of people, and I'm, and I'm forgive me, correct me if I'm wrong, but they call it the dream molecule or something or something like that. Cause you're the spirit to, molecule. The spirit There's molecule. a book yeah. written about it. It's a very good book actually. Yeah. So, I mean, is there truth to that? Is it something... And I suppose it goes back to when we were talking about psych- psychedelic therapy, isn't it? It's like, is, can, a, can a drug, can it help you reach enlightenment? Well, be this, enlightened? Is, so this is the other thing about psychedelics is that they, um, they spark so many wild stories that are really, they're quite compelling. Like this idea that magic mushrooms was the stepping stone bet- that sort of brought about human consciousness that apes found mushrooms and ate them and had a huge spiritual awakening but then there's also with dmt that there's some evidence that our bodies release dmt um like dmt is made in the human body and why is that and so the idea that this guy has and um his book is well worth reading i don't necessarily agree with everything in it but his idea is that um dmt is kind of released from the pituitary gland at at integral moments in your life and also just before death and um it's a really like it's a really nice idea but like i there's not really any evidence for well, it. Well, just the thing, I've heard this myth as well, and I was very skeptical about it. Because he wrote it. a um, book. I mean, yeah. What was really interesting right there is while Susie was saying all of that, yeah. um, I was showing Sahel a very interesting passage that I highlighted in the book. And Susie, at the same time, was just looking at the book, like, yeah, yeah, that, right, put that out right. Yeah, I wrote that. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> let me check. Let me check. But it, there's that one myth um, that you put in there about uh, it, the, you know, it affects, it doesn't affect the brain. It affects the soul. Oh, yes. The soul. DMT affects not the brain, but the soul. Yeah. Nice. This myth. And I've never heard it before, but that sounds... If someone said that to me, like, look, this drug isn't going to mess with your brain. It's mm. not going to do anything that you'll feel it in your soul. I understand. I wouldn't mm. do it personally, but I understand. That's a really good selling point. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have where, Alex. Where, Alex, where, I'm a professional. Where's your soul? That's the question. I sold mine for some uh, dinosaurs <laughs> to Millhouse. Uh, <laughs> that's a very old school Simpsons <laughs> reference. I appreciate that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, you're an expert in this sort of stuff, and you've been doing it for a while. You've written a book about it. That takes a lot of work and not a lot of knowledge. So starting from the beginning, or even when you're writing this book, what were some of the misconceptions that you had about certain drugs? Like, do any of them stand out in particular? Like, something that you thought, huh, that is, I did not think that. Because going through this book, I was like, wait, cocaine doesn't mess up the middle bit of your nose? The septum bit? No, it doesn't. You know, like I that was that okay. is, that, that's surprising. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it it does, but not it doesn't rot it. Yeah, yeah. That's it, what, it's not great for your nose. So yeah. the advice is, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you are going to do a lot of cocaine, to wash your nose out quite thoroughly and you switch which nostril you're using. I um, love how you're looking at me when you say this. Is, <laughs> where you do a lot of cocaine, <laughs> uh, you wash your nose. Um, I will do. Thank you. <laughs> but in, you know, in terms of that, I mean, are there? You know, when you wrote this book um, as an expert, are there still things that you still believed until you sort of started looking into it? I mean, definitely. The problem is because the book, I've been writing the book for two years. And then before that, I was doing the podcast, which is um, similarly was looking at myths and misconceptions as well. So a lot of them I held quite a while ago, but I can't necessarily remember. But I definitely used to think that addiction was far more, not, I don't want to use the word likely or probable, but sort of, it was it was kind of like for certain drugs in particular, you were almost guaranteed if you used them, you were going to become addicted to them. And actually the evidence is far weaker than that. It's not to say that there aren't substances where your risk is higher, but partly that is due to the type of people who use those substances and the lives that the sort of environments that they're in and the surroundings that they're in. Um, there's so many of the mis- misconceptions were around tobacco and nicotine actually. And partly, I don't know whether that's because I know lots more of those myths and misconceptions because I've done a lot of research into tobacco and nicotine. So those ones are particularly bugbears of mine because I know that field so well. Whereas some of the other substances, quite, quite some of them I hadn't heard of before I started writing the book at all. So sort of couldn't have myths and misconceptions um, or anything about them because I didn't know even what they were. Like drugs like crack, it's really interesting. And potentially it could be really, really helpful in dealing with the opioid crisis. Mm. It's the Southeast Asian like mm. leaves they grow. And so this thing can help with addiction, basically, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it seems, it's not really sure how it operates. So it's causing a bit of a ruckus in the US because the um, Food and Drug Administration have said it is an opioid when actually... It, it has some effect on opioid receptors, but that doesn't automatically make it an opioid. And it also doesn't have a lot of effects mm. that lots of opioids have, like it doesn't depress breathing and it doesn't do various other things that opioids do that that are harmful as well. So a lot, well, not a lot, but some people in the US are using it to try and get themselves off, off prescription opioids. opioids. I think I've heard stuff about people using psychedelics to help them 
get off opiates. Uh, and I feel like a lot of that is, well, a lot of addiction is rooted in trauma, isn't it? And that's where psychedelics can be helpful in confronting some repressed feelings, I suppose, or... Uh, the research I mean, what's the into research? psychedelic therapy yeah. that's going on at the moment is really, really interesting. But it's not just take a psychedelic and be on your way. It's kind of the psychedelic is part of a talking therapy as well. It's a process, isn't so it? Yeah. It's part of exactly dealing with the underlying issues surrounding. And so it's around things like trauma, but also, yeah, as you say, around addiction. There's a really big study going on in Exeter and I think in London as well, looking at ketamine to treat alcohol dependence. I've heard it can do stuff with depression as well, ketamine. Yeah, um, so there's, yeah, there's mm. research looking at Also, if you well. take too much, you shit yourself. <laughs> I've witnessed that. I mean, I'll take your I've witnessed it. it but <laughs> I've witnessed it. It's happened. <laughs> I've seen it happen in front of my face. Oh, it's yeah. horrible. <laughs> I mean, you can definitely like sort of you can be very vulnerable if you take too much ketamine because it's an anesthetic. It's a dissociative yeah. anesthetic. So, so you so shit yourself. It, yeah, well, it, I mean, it's it numbs you. So you probably wouldn't realize that you were having a bowel movement. But also you can potentially put yourself in vo like vulnerable situations where you, That's true. you can't look up. You really need someone to be looking after Have, you. Uh, there's a thing called that. a K-hole which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> oh my it's God. very bad. <laughs> Please tell my virgin ears, what is a K-hole? Basically, if you take too much ketamine, you go to the little world. I, I, first time I, uh, I did K, um, I K-holed, and I thought I was drowning. It was fucking traumatic, man. As I ain't doing that shit again. I mean, you're able to talk about it very candidly right now. Like you, you don't yeah. Really I don't touch. I don't. I don't do any K or any hard drugs anymore. Um, I mean, yeah, you're mm. able to talk about it really candidly. Yeah, because I had issues with addiction, which is why I'm really interested in it, to hearing about it and what are the causes of it. And something I've realised from my own personal experience is that drug addiction is not the drug is that at fault. Yeah, it's partly. It's it's the drug is is addictive, but the the reason you're addicted is because you're using it to help with your own uh, problems. Was it sort of difficult writing a book about drugs um, without straying into your views on what policy should be or like like that? Yeah, it was a sort of conscious decision to leave that out. And I, there are really good books about drug policy that that you should read instead of mine, if that's what you're interested in. Having said that, I think if you read it, it's quite clear what I think, uh, because, because the evidence really strongly points in a particular direction. And though I don't talk about things specifically, there are certainly lots of points where the kind of social, cultural and political impact of drug policy on drugs themselves and on people who use drugs is really relevant to what I'm talking about. So that has to be mentioned. And I think that's certainly the case when I'm talking about um, poppers, for example. And um, one of the myths around poppers was that poppers cause, well, there was the one myth where Alex is doing an excellent dance right now. They pop your brain. And you can hear your brain cells popping and that's why they're called poppers, which is a great, <laughs> a great myth. Um, but another one was that they caused 
HIV, basically, and that people wow. used to think that they, wow, wow. they caused... Um, well, because HIV, when it was first mm. sort of discovered, was called gay cancer. Yeah. And it was really sort of homophobic kind of, oh, promiscuous men um, kind of getting this disease yeah. because they're careless and because they're having drug-fueled sex and this kind of thing. Um, and so the sort of, you can't ignore the policy and the cultural environment that goes around that. And similar with talking about cocaine and crack cocaine, you can't ignore the sort mm. of racism that went around how powder cocaine compared to crack cocaine was yeah. treated in the USA in the 80s. Absolutely. And, and I, still. And I, I think you, you're talking about like the political ramifications. I mean, how many people smoke cannabis in this country or have tried it, but yet we're criminalizing young people young people from minority communities often uh some of the most vulnerable people in our society through criminalizing cannabis now um i think if you look at drugs in society how prevalent it is how much it influences society how big a part it is like you're talking about music and festivals and gigs and stuff it's like how can we still have that mentality where we're um like outlawing the use of these recreational drugs when they're really so widely used it just seems silly and counterproductive to actually tackling the issue of addiction which is the real social issue from drug use isn't it i mean in that your view is sort of very clear that no it's uh, not i'm I, completely impartial but <laughs> but susie i mean hannah's question to you is um susie what would you do if you were in charge of britain's drug policy you can at this point go, Hannah, I'm not answering that question. Mm -hmm. Well, no, what I would do is I would um, actually listen to the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, which is an, an expert panel who do research into drugs and policy and and criminality and society and all of these kind of things and actually listen to what they say about what's the best harm reduction method to deal with them because they politicians have this amazing resource and they... They listen a bit, but they don't. Like, uh, there's quite a lot of um, ACMD reports that suggest a certain thing, and then the opposite happens. And I'm not naive enough to think that all policy should be exactly based on evidence, and that nothing other than scientific evidence is what should be used to make political decisions, because the world is bigger than that. However, <laughs> is it when I'm king? There, there are things. When I'm king of all this land. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would listen to experts. Listen, and I, experts. Fuck I am experts. not the expert on that particular question, but if I were in charge, I would listen to the experts. Uh, we're we're done with experts. Brexit, come on. No. <laughs> I mean, Sahel, one of the points you did make is how drugs are so closely entwined yeah. with culture. Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think it's all based in hypocrisy because, like I've said, and I'm I, like, for example, I've smoked a joint with from the Home Office. Yeah, who works in the anti-drugs department, and uh, and they said to me, and I questioned, and I was like, "Hey, you're smoking a joint with me right now. Your job is to stop people taking drugs, is to be against drugs. What is your reasoning for that?" Well, in a, a, without saying word for word, his general explanation was was that it's not good for general society, but some people can handle it, and I was like. That's hypocrisy, isn't it? Like rank hypocrisy. And that is the problem with the drug, the way that we form drug policy in this country is that some people think, oh, 
there's there's the stereotypical views around drug users and how what type of people use drugs and i think you find like if i think they did a swab in like a parliament of like cocaine or whatever some i don't know if this is true but and they found like ridiculous amount of residue of like cocaine in the in the parliament bathrooms and you're like wait a second like these are the people who are enacting these policies like and but when the tory leadership campaign was going on how many of them came out and said that they'd used cocaine or opium if you're from the 1800s um but like michael gove because he is a sort of middle to upper class white man Mm. he can very safely come out and say yes i did cocaine and it was a it was a mistake. It was m- several mistakes over many years. <laughs> it's like, yo, how many mistakes Multiple are you talking? <laughs> mistakes. And, yeah. and I, I should have been punished for it. And it's right that people are punished for it. And it's like, but people like you aren't He's not punished, punished. for it, are, my, you, are they? My brother went to prison for four years for cocaine. Yeah, and it was only two grams. I didn't know it was only two grams. Cause no, it's two grams of coke, but also a kilo of cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> but you got the four years for the coke, so that is factually accurate. At the time, you could only get three years for cannabis. Wow. So because it was a class C at the time. That is the hypocrisy of our... Of the pro- of the whole drugs debate, isn't it? Is it is hypocrisy, yeah. and what's also hypocrisy is around alcohol as well. That we think that alcohol is somehow not a drug, and that it's oh well, yes, of course I drink, but of course I'd never do drugs. And it's like, well, other than Mm-mm. the sort of the legality of it, is there really that much of a difference? Is the thing that's putting you off? And I think the, these are good reasons to be put off. Like you're worried about. Um, not knowing what's in it, um, mm. not knowing the dose, that kind of thing. Like, so the last chapter in the book is called Drug Use in the Real World. And it's all about how the book always, like each chapter in the book is about the effects of a particular substance. But actually, if you get a tablet or a powder or whatever, you don't necessarily know what it is that you're taking. Mystery powder, we've all been there. <laughs> but, you know, so you're putting yourself at higher risk just because of the legality, not anything to do with what you're actually taking. You're at risk because you don't know mm. what it is. And even with something that we do know what it is, like alcohol, it's really easy to misjudge it and drink too much and get feel awful the next day or the next three We've days. We've all been there year. also. Exactly. <laughs> so why, why not do things that would make it safer for the people who are going to take a pill or a powder so they can actually know what's in it, what the dose is? Stop young people dying at festivals because they take something that they think is one thing and is actually mm. four times the strength they think it is or something completely different. So why is it then? Tell us. Ask Michael Gove. <laughs> Good old Michael. Get down I, on the podcast. I mean, Get in here, mate. <laughs> These are the views of Dr. Susie, <laughs> not of Alex Sahel Patel, Hannah Ayub, and Ozama Ismail, just so in case the Home Office for some reason Listen, starts. my views are way stronger than that. <laughs> you know, of, drugs is a problem. I've seen it in my life, you know, without going into further details. Um, and absolutely, you know, people who sell drugs, it, it, which harm people in a negative way, um... You know there is a debate there to be had, but uh, I think there is a case to be made that it should be more open, and we should have a more uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? We should have a more reasonable, more fa- like fact, uh, grown up yeah, grown up around conversation it. around this because 
clearly a lot of people take drugs recreationally and we shouldn't be criminalizing people who are providing that service we should actually open it up and make it more transparent and have that like you say ability to test and to verify so exactly what you're saying is that mm. it should be a health issue not a criminal issue absolutely it should be public we, health issue yeah you're right completely Susie, if there's one thing that you wish people could know about drugs, what would it be? One key takeaway from your book. I mean, don't make it too good of a takeaway so they don't have to read yeah. the book. But like enough of a nugget that they're like, ooh. Tantalizing nugget. Yeah, tantalizing nugget. Like a quarter of a cinnamon and nutmeg. I mean, I think alcohol is just as much of a drug as any of the other drugs. That's the That's the myth I hear the most that annoys me the most. And I think science is just as much to blame for this. Like there's a academic journal called drug and alcohol use and it annoys me every day because it's like if you separate it you just create more of a problem around having non-hypocritical discussions i can get with that yeah i can get with that um susie have you enjoyed um being on the podcast today so very much yeah Has, has it given you that release it's wonderful. I've got to go and record a podcast of my own now. Oh, no, poor oh, you. I wow. mean, does it give you the same amount of release that um, the small amount of LSD that you store in your fat does? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Just at any moment it could appear and off you go. Yep, that's a fun myth. <laughs> the LSD gets stored in your body and then can be released at any point in time. But to hear more about that, you should go and read her book, Say Why to Drugs. It's out now. Do you know what? I haven't read the book yet, but I am 100% going to read this book after hearing talk to you about it. It seems really interesting. Thanks. And I recommend everyone does the same. I think I appreciate you being here. Have you you've enjoyed it, yeah? Oh, yeah. You've enjoyed it, yeah? I've, I've learned so much. It's been a wicked episode. All right. Well, I've been Alex Southbridge. We've got Sahel Patel. Bye-bye. And Susie Gage. Bye. And this has been Why You a Doctor Yet. Bye. Fun fact, at the live show, two people hit on Sahel. He went on dates with two of our listeners. What? We, we no longer have those Listen, listeners. Uh, no, that's not what happened. Um, that is exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, on a best case scenario, they are still listening. Yeah, I hope they're still listening. I hope it's not personal. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Listen, okay. I'll get rejected all the fucking time. That doesn't mean that's not, oh Jesus Christ. That, we have so much to unpack there, but not today, now, ever. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.